<laughs> it might go just in, in tune with it. And maybe the but, Lord gave it to you. You know, I just want to say, you know, like you guys, I've, I've kind of told you guys my a little bit of my testimony and stuff. And um, basically, I was saved at a church because of the worship and just how the worship just really affected me and it's on and stuff. And, and it's like, I don't even remember anything that the guy preached, but I knew that, I mean, when, when they were worshiping, it just really just drew my heart. And it's like, this is what I want. This is what I've been looking for. And, and, um, and like, even like the guitar, I never started playing until after I got saved. And I started playing because I wanted to be able to worship the Lord and stuff. And, and so, um, you know, um, it's kind of interesting that, uh, what, what was, uh, not David, what's Frank's friend's name? Steve? Steve, yeah. Mm-hmm. His girlfriend was uh, a graduate of CFNI because um, the the worship pastors at our church were both graduates from CFNI and, and they just really had a heart for worship and it made me want to worship the Lord and stuff and um, and so I just started taking lessons from her on how to play the guitar so I could just sit and just... and. and when I first started playing the guitar, I would just sit for hours and just play songs and just worship God. And, you know, probably to someone else's ears, it sounded like strangling a cat or something. But <laughs> but for me, I mean, it was just awesome and it was profound. And I just really loved just worshiping the Lord. And so I love to worship God. I don't have anything against worshiping God, except that I think that we we tend to put we as Christians, we're really faddish, right? And we tend to put things on pedestals and we tend to sometimes lose God in the things that we're doing rather than in finding God through those things. Do, does that make sense? And stuff. And so I kind of wanted to talk about that in not, not in way of criticism, but more in way of warning and in, 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 in some of the things that I see the body of Christ kind of gravitating towards that that kind of um concern me a little bit and stuff and so uh turn to psalm 96 if you have your bibles because god loves worship right and he loves worshipers and stuff and in psalm 96 Verse 1, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all, excuse me, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens... Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Look at this in verse 9. It says, Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. And I think the the King James says, um, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And so when we come to the Lord, it's not, uh, um, we don't just come to the Lord any way we want to, right? And that's the thing with us as believers is a lot of times we fall into patterns, we fall into routines, and we start doing things is because this is the way we do it. Like you even look at our church services and stuff. Our church services, most of the churches that we go to, you start out with three or four praise songs or, or worship songs. Um, you do the announcements, then there's the preaching, then there's some more worship, and then you go home, right? And you can find that in practically every church. And the thing is, is, is that how God wants it? I'm not saying that it's not. And I think that if we're doing it from pure hearts, if we're doing it from hearts full of, um, you know, just a, we're really seeking Him and we're desiring to know Him and to grow in Him and things like that, then it's pleasing to God. But it can become just ritual. It can become just formality. And, you know, the number one, you know, if I were to ask you what the number one attribute of God is, what would you say? Holiness. Holiness. Right? Do you guys agree? Because, you know, a lot of times when, if you ask people that, they would say, well, God is love. Well, the Bible does say God is love in one place, right? 
But it says over and over that God is holy, especially like you see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament when the veil is pulled back from the, uh, the, um, the throne of God, what are the angels doing? They're just saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And so... <clears throat> I was say something. It's His holiness that makes His love so much more special because He's so holy that he, we can't stand in His presence without His love. So it's actually His holiness that makes His love, if we understand how holy He is, we understand how great His love is at the same time because, because He's so holy that our sinful state, we can't stand before Him, but in His love, He allowed us to come and stand before a holy and pure God. Yeah. That's what it means to me. And, and the thing is, is love is not so much an attribute. Love is, we know that love is a verb, right? To love somebody means to do something. Love is not really, you know, who a person is. God, who God is, is holy, right? How he expresses that holiness is through his love, right? And it's through his love that he has mercy on us. It's through his love that he forgives us. And the way that he knows that we, the way that we know that he loves us is the fact that we're still breathing, right? Right. Because in view of our sins, God could easily just have wiped us all out and started all over again, just like with Noah. God, ha God has that right. He has that ability, but it's his love and it's mercy that causes him not to do that. And the thing is, is so the number one attribute of God is not love, but it's his holiness. And as such, worship is not just a song service or a time filler, right? It's not just, and I've seen, <clears throat> I've seen so many, and I'm not talking about any of our churches that we're a part of, but we have been to churches where this is just a time filler, right? And this is just what we do. We're going to spend this 15 minutes right here in worship and it's become this thing rather than a heart cry unto the Lord, rather than this thing where we're just crying out to God and we're just opening our hearts and we want to see him, we want to know him, and we want to touch the hem of his garment. And that's what worship is. Worship is not a time filler. It is not a song service. And to be, uh, to, 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 um, to, to be worship, it has to be anointed by the Holy Spirit, right? And I have been in places and in churches and in worship times where it's just nothing but music, where it's like you might as well just sit around a campfire and sing Kumbaya, right? And the thing is, is there's no anointing, no presence of God. And the thing is, is again, a lot of our churches, we forget that this is, this is all about God. This is all about his glory and it's all for him, to him, and, and just all for him. And we forget that in our churches and we're, we're like, this is the time where we do this. This is the time where we do that. And our hearts are far away from God because it's not glorifying him and it's not pleasing to him. And the problem is, is a lot of our services and a lot of our times and our get togethers become man-centered rather than God-centered. Does that make sense? It's like, this is what we do. And it, you know, it makes us happy. It's not to make us happy. It's to make God happy. What happens if you're in a worship service and, and, and people are just really worshiping God and it's just so powerful? And, and we've, been in, we've been in services like that where it's just so powerful and the worship is there and it's like God's coming down. And it's like, oh, oh, it's time to stop that because now we've got to hear the message. <laughs> exactly right? right? And so it's like... In some senses, if the worship is touching the hem of his yes. garment, it's Amen. far more important Amen. than what this human is going to come and say about God. Yes. Right? Amen. Not that that's not important. What the pastor brings is obviously important in things. But the main reason why we gather together, the main reason why we, uh, where two or more are gathered in my name, is to meet him. And we forget that so often and it becomes this man-centered thing. It becomes this program-driven thing. And that's why so many of our churches a lot of times are dead and lifeless and there's no power, there's no sense of the majesty and the wonder and the awe of God. 
because it's become this program and it, you know this is what it says on our bulletin so we're going to have to stick to these times and we've been even as worship leaders we've been in times like that where we're like oh, man I'm just going to keep going and stuff and and we've told oh no you guys have to stop okay but God's moving no now it's time to do something else and stuff and we've been told well it's got to be three songs it can't be no it has to be three songs you know and so we regiment all this stuff. And again, we're putting God in this box. And we're saying to God, Lord, you have to operate according to our constraints. Mm -hmm. You have to come down when we want you to come down. You have to go back when we want you to go back. You have to do what we want. And so again, it becomes man-centered rather than God-centered. And that is not true worship. And... Uh, so worship is for the express purpose of pleasing and glorifying him. Uh, if he is holy, then our worship must also be holy. And uh, so again, the question is, who are we pleasing? Are we pleasing God or are we pleasing ourselves? Uh, in Hebrews 8 verse 5, we've talked about it before, so we won't turn there. But in Hebrews 8, he's talking, talking about the tabernacle and when God was speaking to Moses about the tabernacle and everything associated it with it, the priesthood, the Levites, the songs, the, the sacrifices, the, all that stuff. And God was telling Moses, I want you to make it exactly after the pattern that I show you. Right. So again, worship is not this thing that we just kind of come up, uh, come up with on our own. And, you know, this is how we want to do it. You know, we if we feel like doing it this way, we're going to do it this way. And I'm not. And, and again, when when I became a Christian, there was this whole thing about uh, rock music is a sin and guitar, you know, electric guitars are a sin and drums are a sin and stuff like that. And the simple fact of the matter is instruments or no instruments mean nothing. Right? I mean, instruments or no instruments mean absolutely nothing because you can sing a cappella to the Lord without any instrumentation whatsoever and be worshiping with all your heart. Or you can have a 40-piece orchestra that's playing all this beautiful music and it's not worship, but it's pleasing and gratifying to your senses. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing too, is, is that a lot of our worship is pleasing and gratifying to our senses. Mm -hmm. um, we as believers, a lot of times, we, we are emotional people and we like to ride on emotions. That's why so many of these, these, these television preachers are so popular because it's all power and they're yelling and they're, they're screaming and, you know, and all this stuff. And people like that. And honestly, that's why a lot of people get crazy over end time stuff because it's sensational. And human beings, as human beings, we have a tendency to gravitate towards the things that are sensational because it gratifies our flesh, right? It gets, gets that excitement and those goosebumps. And I'm not saying that, uh, obviously, if God is moving, there's going to be goosebumps, right? Yeah. And there is going to be excitement, but sometimes it won't be excitement. Sometimes it'll be, it'll be a humbling and a yeah. breaking and, yeah. a, and a weeping before the Lord. So it's not always, again, this formula, well, you know, and, and again, you know, we've been to these worship services, well, you know, if you're slave today, you're going to be jumping and shouting, and that's not necessarily the truth, mm -hmm. because that may not be how the Holy Spirit is moving right then and there, yeah. and again, we're trying to dictate to God how we're going to do His worship, Yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, turn to me, uh, turn with me to um, uh, Exodus chapter 30. So we were talking about how in the Old Testament, Old Testament tabernacle and everything that had to do with it had to be made to exact specifications, had to be done God's way and not man's way. And God was very serious about it. He told Moses, be sure that you do this according to the way that I show you. And in Exodus 30 verse 1, let me turn there. Verse 1, it says, God is speaking to Moses. He says, Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense, and you will make it of acacia wood. Its length will be a cubit, and its width a cubit. It shall be square, and its height shall be two cubits. Its horns will shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top, its sides all around, and its horns, and you will make a gold molding all around for it. 
You shall make two gold rings for it under its moldings. You shall make them on its two sides, on opposite sides, and they shall be holders for the poles with which to carry it. So you see, God is being very specific about how he wants this, right? He's not saying, you're just going to take some wood and you're going to throw it together. It doesn't matter what the dimensions are. And, you know, you might put some gold on it. You might put some bronze on it. He's very specific with his measurements. He's being specific in every way. And now we know that the Old Testament was uh, God worked in physical ways as types and shadows of the realities in the New Testament, right? Does that make sense? Yes. And so when we see God being specific in the Old Testament with these things, we know that he's not telling us that we're going to build these incense boxes and do these literal things. But we are seeing that God is very specific about how he wants the things concerning God and the things concerning worship to be to be specifically done. And... Uh, in verse five or verse six, you shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the ark of the testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Look at this in verse nine. You shall not offer any strange incense on this altar or burnt offering or meal offering, and you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. So again, God's being very specific about how he wants it done, right? To look at uh, verses 34 in the same chapter. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself spices, stacte and anicha and galbamon, spices with pure frankincense, and there shall be an equal part of each. With it you shall, you shall make incense of perfume, and the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine and put a part of it before the testimony in front of the tent of meeting, where I will meet you with you, it shall be most holy to you. Look at this in verse 37. The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make any like it as a perf to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. So again, God's very serious about the things of God, the things pertaining to God. And again, a lot of these things we take so lightly and it's just, you know, it's just a worship service. And, and, and we, when we choose songs, we're just like, well, I like the way this song sounds or, you know what I'm saying? And, and there's no prayer that goes into it. There's no seeking God. Lord, what do you want me to play? What do you want to hear? What will please you and things? Um, turn to another place in Leviticus chapter 10. So we see that God is, again, very concerned because what is, we saw that the number one attribute of God is his holiness, right? And God, like us, maybe even more, well, more so, uh, is concerned about his name, right? The Bible even talks about in Proverbs that a good name is better than uh, choice gold and things like that. And because your name is your reputation, right? And God is very concerned about his reputation because, you know, that's what the world does. That's what Satan does, right? The world and Satan distort the reputation of who God is. They take the holiness of God and they turn it into something else. When, when we say that God is holy, um, the world turns it in, well, God is just angry and wants to kill you and things. And, and you know what I'm saying? And so the Satan and the enemy takes the things of God and turns them around. And God, that's why God is concerned about how we represent him because the way that we represent God is the way that the world sees him, right? And if the world sees us as treating God as holy and worshiping in a holy way and, and, and showing... Um, the worship that he deserves, they're going to say, man, this God is something else, right? This God is somebody that is, that is high and exalted and not just this song service and not just this, these uh, people doing their thing. But they, when they worship God, they are, they are touching heaven. And there are songs, there are worship services and times of worship throughout history where, where people were touching heaven. And that's the kind of worship that I, I want to be a part of, right? And that's the kind of worship that I want, that 
we want to see the churches being a part of rather than just um, doing our own thing. And in Leviticus, I can't speak English, chapter 10, verse 1. Let me turn there. Verse 1. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu... The sons of Aaron, so we know that Aaron was a high priest, right? Um, his sons were to bring, were to pat, or he was to pass on his lineage to his sons, to his children, to his grandchildren, all throughout the generations of the Israelites. And it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. And look at this. So Aaron therefore kept silent. So here Aaron, as he sees his son stricken by God, and when Moses tells him that God, this is what God says, I will be treated as holy, Aaron doesn't complain. He doesn't say, God, you're wrong. He, he's, he receives it because he knew that his, sin, his sons were sinning. Um, and that, that word strange, where it says that they brought strange fire, that word means to be strange, to be a foreigner, an enemy, to be loathsome. And the thing is, is like these people are the same people that Jesus speaks about in Matthew 7 where he says that, at the at the end that there's going to be people who come to me and call me lord lord and he's going to say depart from me i never knew you why because they're bringing strange fire they're bringing something for other than what god has asked of them right and that's the thing we, those are the same people that say lord didn't we cast out demons in your name didn't we do all these things for you he's good and he's going to say to them depart i never knew you you were a stranger to me the fire that you were bringing was strange fire. It was to gratify your own desires or to gratify your own flesh. When you thought you were worshiping, you were simply exalting yourself. And, you know, when, when I mean, all, and there is a danger with musicians because, and especially the better the musician a person is, there there is greater opportunity for them to glorify their flesh, right? And so as a musician, if you're good, if you have to continually be humbling yourself as a worship leader, just the same way we expect this from our pastors, our teachers, our elders, right? We expect them to be holy. We expect them to love God with all our hearts, not only in, in public, but also in private, to be seeking God, to be worshiping Him. And that's what God wants from His worship leaders. He wants people to think, you can't live... A life how you, of glorifying, gratifying your own flesh all throughout the week and then come on Sunday and try to lead people into the presence of the Lord. It won't work. That is not a worship leader. A worship leader is someone who leads by example and says, this is my life. Imitate me as I imitate the Lord, just like Paul said. Um, that word strange is also the same word that you read about in Proverbs where it talks about several places where the strange woman comes to tempt you, right? And the strange woman, it talks about listening to wisdom because the strange woman will lead your heart away from God. And so we see all these things in the church, all this emphasis on worship right now, and, and, and I wonder how much of it is pure incense to the Lord. And I'm not... I'm not naming out any particular person, any particular church, any particular uh, movement or any of that. But it's like worship has become the thing. It's become the uh, thing. People go from worship conference to worship conference to worship conference. And I'm like, and they're paying like $20, $60. And, and, and the thing is, is depending on how much money you pay, that you're closer to the worship leaders and the worship team and stuff. And I'm like, it doesn't make sense to me, Right. I would never go pay to hear the word of God preached. Why should I go pray, pay money to worship the Lord? 
Some of the best times that I've had with the Lord have just been me sitting here before God. And you you don't have to be able to play an instrument. Sometimes just listening to worship music and just God's just moving on your heart and you're worshiping him and stuff. But the thing is, is, is like now we've got we we've got all these worship leaders and these worship movements and people put them on pedestals. And that's the problem. And I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that any person or team or any of that's not following God, but I'm saying that we as believers tend to put preachers on pedestals. We, put, we, tend, we tend to put um, worship leaders, worship teams, worship movements on pedestals and tend to exalt them, right? And these are nothing more than servants of God. And so we're not to worship any man, and, and that's the problem with us as believers. We worship movements. I mean, even like Azusa Street and times where God moved in the past. And so what we do is we try to imitate that. And it's like we know that in this movement, God moved as a result of, you know, doing this or that and stuff. And so we try to duplicate it and God will not be duplicated. He won't be put in boxes. God's like saying, I'm doing a new thing. And worship is a good thing, but again, what I see is I see a lot of believers who, 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 it's like they have to run from worship thing to worship thing, and it's like they got to always be worshiping. Worship is not the end all be all, right? Our lives are to be worshiped to the Lord. And so when I'm, when I'm, when I'm at work and I'm dealing with an unruly customer and he won't listen to reason and he just has a a complaint and he just wants to fight and to argue, I'm worshiping God when I'm like, sir, it's okay. It's going to be okay. We're going to try to do what's right to help you out in this situation. That's worship, right? And I have been in worship situations. We've seen situations where people come into worship services and they're weeping and they're crying and stuff. And then they go out from there and like the next day they're sleeping with somebody's daughter. Or they're smoking weed or or whatever it is. And stuff. And that's, it's like you were in this worship service where you got transformed. You were in this worship service where you touched the hymn of the Lord and you go out and you're not any different than you were before. So just because we sing, just because we cry, just because we lift our hands or we dance or whatever we do does not mean that we're worshiping. Worship is your life. Worship is what, if we're living a holy life, if we're, if, we're, if we're trying to please Him in every respect, if we're trying to do all the things that please Him, then when we have our song service, then it's powerful. Then it is true worship, right? And that's what, the, that's what God is looking for. He's looking for that kind of worship. He's not looking for people, because everybody likes to sing. I loved singing before I got saved. I loved, you know... Just you know, everybody loves music. It's in the heart of man to to sing, to 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 dance, to play music. Look at concerts, man. Thousands of people go to concerts. We love music. We were we, it, God has placed it in our hearts to be musically inclined, and I think that that was all to worship Him. But we turn our music upon the bands that we go to to see, right? We turn uh, we turn we turn it into an idol. It's like, oh, well, you know, especially before we're saved, we're worshiping the music, right? We're worshiping the bands. So There's God... times that I've actually truly been worshiping, like, by myself in the morning and reading God's Word and just so close to Him and, you know, crying and just, like, feeling so holy and... You know, 15 minutes later, yeah. you know, just you go down the street and you get mad at somebody. And right. Your mouth lets loose and you're just like, what on earth? How, you know, how can out of the same mouth? Yeah. It, and so sometimes it really is true and then you turn around. And sure. Really and obviously I'm, I'm speaking in generalities. And, you know, we have all experienced that. Peter experienced that. Jesus said, who do you think, think I am? He's like, you're the Lord, you're the Christ, the Son of God. He said, heaven and earth revealed this to you. Then the next moment, he said, he's trying to stop Jesus from going to the cross, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, in the same breath, you know? And so, yes, it, it is true, but I'm just saying that I know that, you know, people people treat worship as, as, as it's this thing that's, oh, this life-changing thing, and it's like, but their lives aren't changed. As if it was for them. Yeah, 
And it is because it gratifies that that need to, to sing, that need to, to dance, that need to shout, that need to praise, you know, and stuff like that. And what I'm saying is that that's not always worship. And sometimes it that, may look like it, but it's not always. And sometimes that emotion will give you a false peace, you know, because you may be living in, you know, consistent sin and a particular, you know, thing that you just refuse to repent of, but you go to church on Sunday and when you sing, you get like a false peace out of that because your emotions are all caught up in it. But. Yeah. And it's like anything, you know, we, we, you know, it's like we, you, we go to church or we do a good thing and we think that, okay, that makes me right with God. But then we're like cussing out our neighbor or something like that. And, and again, I understand that we're all at different places and we're all going on to maturity and we'll all fall and we all stumble and stuff. But I'm talking about more of a lifestyle than yeah. anything, right? Yeah. I'm talking about the lifestyle of, of, cause I mean, we've known people like that. We've been people like that. You know, at times in our lives where we're not really following God, but we go to that worship and we cry and we shed tears and we're like, oh, I love you, Jesus, and stuff. And it's like, but our hearts are far from him. Um, turn to another place in Second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 6. Second Samuel chapter six. When you read it, you first you you're like, why? But as as you study more of the word, you begin to understand. And in verse one, um, what happened is under Saul, because Saul refused to follow the Lord. Um, Saul, we all know the story. God made Saul king, right? Because the people asked for a king. God, uh, Saul refused to follow the Lord. He kept sinning against God and God says you know what you're out I'm going to make someone else king in your place and that's when you know he chose David and things and so Saul even before he died he went to the witch of Endor and stuff and she you know and he saw Samuel and things and uh, and that's after he had outlawed witches in the land and stuff and so and then so Saul's life ends in Gilboa when him and his son Jonathan were killed by the Philistines and when they did that, they also captured the Ark of the Covenant, right? And so after David becomes king, he wants to get the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, okay? And so in Second um, Samuel 6, it says, Now David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. And they placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. Now, I'm going to tell you right here, God is already angry. Okay? And we're going to see in a little bit why he's angry. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the cart, the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating with the, before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the... So again, everything on the outside looks great. Everything looks like, man, this is... God's got to be pleased with this. It says, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. So... The, the wagon hits a bump or something. The ark is about to fall off. Uzzah reaches out and he grabs it. Verse 7, And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down for there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, or out, outbreak against Uzzah. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him, but David took it to the house of Obed-Eden. So again, the picture is, is, is here they are, they're bringing the ark before the Lord, they're dancing before it, they're, they're worshiping and stuff like that. The ark begins to fall, someone puts out his hand to catch it. A good thing, you would think. And God strikes him dead on the spot. And so we're going to find out why. Because again, when you first read that story, you're like, what is that about? Turn to Exodus chapter 25. 
because God is the only person in this universe that can protect uh, that can protect his name without pride. Does that make sense? God is very zealous for his name. He, uh, you know, he is, he is zealous about how he is represented before the people because when I say, like, I'm this great person or I'm this, it's a lie because I'm not, right? But when God says it, it's true. And, you know, the Bible, there's a place where the Bible says that Moses was the humblest man in all the earth. You know who wrote that? Moses. And he wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he was at that place where he could truly say that. And the same is true of God. And so we, you read this thing and, and, and like unbelievers are like, well, why does God have to be worshipped? Or who does God think he is? God is who he is. He is God. He is almighty. He is holy, holy, holy. And he will be worshipped with reverence and fear and honor according to his name. And we as believers must worship him according to his will and not our own. All right? And in Exodus um, 25, verse 8, this is again when God was telling Moses how to make the things of the, the tabernacle and things like that. In verse, uh, verse 8, it says, uh, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according, again, here it is, according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle as, and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. <clears throat> just so or exactly, right? It says, They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long and one and a half, one and a half cubits wide and one and a half, one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and you shall make a gold molding around it. And you shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet. And two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the ark, in the rings of the ark for they shall not be removed. So again, God is saying, this is how I want the ark to be carried it. And so whenever, anytime the ark was to be moved, it was to be carried on the shoulders of the priests. Okay? And there's a message in that. When the presence of God is moving, it's to be carried on the shoulders of his people, right? It's to be carried on the shoulders of the priests. It's to be carried with reverence. And it's not something you just throw onto a cart and let some cows pull it, but it's to be carried by the priests and the holy ones of God. And this is not only a, a, a service, but it's an honor. Mm -hmm. That makes me think of, um, like, in the, in the temple, like, where, like, the high priest... Like, I think maybe he had to go through, like, a cleansing. How mm -hmm. he could be the only one to go into the yeah. tabernacle or the... Right. Room. Yeah, and th and that's the thing. And, and one thing about being carried on the shoulders, mm -hmm. that means that the priest buried the burden of it. Does that make sense? They carried it on our shoulders. It wasn't just something that, you know, I'm going to let these cart, these, these, these oxen move this thing. I'm, I'm going to let the oxen carry it. They had to carry it on their shoulders. And when it was overlaid with gold and it had the, tab the, the tablets, uh, the Ten Commandments in inside of it, it had to be kind of heavy, right? And you read the story about when, when the priests first crossed the River Jordan, it says that the rivers of the Jordan, when, when they were coming into the promised land, the rivers did not part until the priest stepped his foot into the water, the priest carrying the ark. Now, the Jordan is a really steep river because it's deep, but it's narrow. And so for them to be able to carry it and go into that, I mean, that was, you know, they're carrying this heavy ark, you know. And again, that's symbolic of the priest. And we are all priests before the Lord. And so the things of God aren't something that we take casually or just, you know, I'm just going to put it on this cart and just do it however I want to do it. We carry them on our shoulder and they are in some senses not, not in a heavy sense or anything like that, but in some senses they are a burden in the sense that they are, are, are to, to, to be carried... Uh, with weight. They're with waiting. weight, yeah, yeah. With, with gravity, with thought, and it can't just be done any way that we want to do it. 
But there's, there is a holiness, there is a solemnity about the things of God. And that's all the things of God, not just worship, but it's all the things of God. Prayer, wor- worship, preaching, teaching, all that kind of stuff. It's a fearful thing, you know? All the things of God, the Bible says is, don't let many of you be teachers because knowing that teachers will be judged more harshly than other people. Well, that's not just teaching. That's other things as well. When we are, when we, God, uh, when God, gives us a calling, when God gives us giftings, they are not to be taken lightly. And so many of us take the things of God that he has given us lightly, and they're not something that we pray about and we seek God over. And God, how do you want me to use this gift? Um, you know, what, what does this gift mean? You know what I'm saying? And each one of us are gifted. And some, a lot of people are gifted and, and they don't find out what they're gifted in. A lot of us, and, and it's not because God won't show it to us. It's just like, well, it's no big deal. And the thing is, is every one of us, it's just like the Bible says, you know, you may be an ear, you might be an elbow, you might be whatever and stuff, but the body of Christ needs each one of our gifts. And that's the way God has designed it. But that gift is not for myself. It's not for my glorification. It's not to put me on any pedestal. That gift is for God first. And then the people to lift them up to God. And that's all the giftings are for, is to lift the people up to God. That's the whole, that's the whole thing about the fivefold ministry. It says, until we all come into the maturity of the man of God. So that's what the giftings, and that's why if God is giving you wisdom, if God is giving you the ability to sing, if God is giving you the ability, whatever it is, we do those for the glory. That's what it means when it says we do all these things for the glory of God, right? And so again, these, uh, you know, so many places just take this stuff lightly and it's no big deal. And yeah, we're just going to do a couple songs and stuff. And um, I was thinking about when I was putting this together, that song by Rich Mullins and stuff where it says, uh, what does it say? It says, when he rolls up his sleeves, he's not just putting on the Ritz. God is an awesome God. It says there's uh, thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists. I mean, that's just such awesome imagery. I mean, because it's like when you sing that, you're like, whoa, you know, because that's who God is. And over and over in the Bible, this is God. He's not just this meek lamb, you know, just, you know, just, you know, this hippie that just go ahead and do it anyway. He's God Almighty. And he commands the winds, and he commands the rains, and he commands everything. And he says to the sea, this is as far as you can go and no further. And he commands it all, and nobody breathes without his ability. Nobody blinks, nobody thinks, nobody does anything unless God has allowed it to happen. And it's all from him, the stars, everything. It's all from him, it's all to him. And, and so again, it's not in this, this is the God we're worshiping. This is the God, and that's as, as such, if this is who we're worshiping, our worship needs to be elevated. Our worship needs to be something that's a gift to this God, right? It's just like the gift that the Magi brought to the baby. Imagine bringing gold to a baby. Imagine bringing frankincense, which was highly, highly expensive, and myrrh to a baby and going, this isn't for the parents, this is for the baby, right? To a baby, so this is our gifts to the Lord. It's not just this, this meaningless. And, and that should be an encouragement to us as well. The gifts that we have are not meaningless to God at all. The gifts that we have, God looks at those and loves it, loves it when we're presenting to them, them to him in a, a humble and a broken and a contrite way. God loves a broken and contrite heart. You, O oh Lord, will not despise. Didn't it say in the word that they were coming to worship the Christ who was born? Yeah. So it was actually an act of worship for them to bring these valuable (coughs) offerings. Yeah, and they traveled for miles, you know. They traveled for months and stuff. And that's the thing, you know, even even when you're a missionary in South America, and um, he, he, he talked about how, like, people would travel for days to come hear him preach the word of God. And he was just an ordinary guy. He was nobody. Nobody special, you know what I'm saying? He wasn't like Billy Graham or... or, Yeah, and stuff. And they would cross rivers and they they were swarming, you know, uh, filled, you know, rapids and stuff. And they would face alligators and jaguars and stuff like that. But they would come two or three days so that they could hear the word of God. In their minds, 
it was you know what I'm saying it wasn't this this God it was like God Almighty and it was worth it for them to travel for that to to hear the word of God to learn about this God and that's who God is and again that's the problem with us as believers is is we follow fads and stuff um I'll just tell you about it for lack of time but in in Judges chapter 8 we know the story of Gideon how he defeated the Midianites right after Gideon defeated the Midianites, they wanted to make him king. And again, that's how we as believers are, right? Oh, this man's moved. God used this man. Let's make him a king and stuff. But he, he's like, no, nah, I'm not going to be your king. And, and so anyway, they, they tore off their earrings and all the gold from the camels things. And they made an ephod, which was basically a breastplate. And it says that the people turned harlot and started worshiping the ephod. And so in, in the same way with, with Moses, when we know the story about how like when the people grumbled against God, he set fiery serpents, right? Mm-hmm. And Moses lifted up the staff with a serpent on it and the, all the people that looked to it were healed, right? Well, the Bible says that the people after, the, after Moses was gone, people began to worship that staff. They even named it Nehushtan or whatever mm-hmm. and they begin to worship that staff. Mm-hmm. And that's the way that the people of God have always been. And that is the concern about the people of God now is that we begin to look at these things and these objects and these movements and we begin to make something of them rather than of God. Mm-hmm. And God will have no part of it because that's an idol. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and again, I'm not saying that it's bad to listen to worship. I'm not saying it's even bad to go to a worship conference and stuff. But, but the problem is, it's like, don't let that become your world, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's just, these people are just following the Lord. And, you know, that's all we're doing, right? Right. So it's good to remember things like that. And then, like, you know, and a lot of worshipers, I mean, they, you, you talk to them and they're just like, oh, I just love Jesus and I just love to worship and stuff. But you talk to them about doctrine and they have no idea. And so with a lot of people, it's all about the worship but the doctrine and the knowledge of who God is is down here. Right. And, so, and it's like, you know, they'll be to every worship service there is, every worship conference, every time the new worship leader comes to town, they'll spend 60 bucks. They'll go to that and stuff. <laughs> but then, you know, if it's like if you want to learn about who God is through his word, it's like, eh, that's not interesting to me. Right? Yeah. And so in a lot of people, again, because it gratifies their emotions, it gratifies their flesh. And the things of God aren't always Fleshly gratifying. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say sexy. (laughs) That's probably not a good word. But that's the thing. The things of God aren't always just this gratifying flesh. Sometimes, like that that song that you were talking about, Cindy, that might be an awesome song. Because sometimes God does put us in a minor key. Sometimes God has us in this place where we're just kind of broken before him. We're, we're seeking him. And it's, it's not about just this, you know, like dancing around and, and, and yelling and stuff. And, and I'm not saying that that's bad at all because there are times for that as well. Uh, but, but even like some of the lyrics, that, like some of the worship songs, you, you listen to the lyrics and you're like, what in the world is this person saying? These lyrics are completely false doctrine. Yeah. And it's like, I cannot sing this song, yeah. you know, but, but these are, these are worldly known worship leaders and stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, how much depth does this person actually have? Does this, because as leaders in the body of Christ, they should know God, not just how to put songs together, not just how, and again, that's a gift from God too, but I'm just saying that the most important thing first and foremost is to know him. And then out of that, everything else flows and stuff. And so that's not a bad thing. But you hear these songs and you're like going, this is whacked out. Or a lot lot of Christian music is like, it could just as well be to my girlfriend or to my wife or whatever and stuff. You know what I'm saying? And so there's so much Christian music that lacks any kind of depth whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And and there are Christians doing Christian music who, who later... You, you find out they're homosexuals or they're in this sin or that sin or whatever. Uh, there was this, there, I'm not going to say who it was, but there was this one Christian musician and stuff that was on the Ellen DeGeneres show not too long ago. And, and I mean, she, she did her stuff, didn't say a word about God. Even the song that she played could have been about her boyfriend or, or whatever and stuff. And then, you know, uh, it's like, and then like, 
and I'm like, okay, I, I can overlook that because sometimes, you know, you don't really know how to bring God into the conversation or whatever and stuff. But after that, you know, someone is talking to her about being a Christian artist and she's like, well, I, first of all, I don't want to be known as a Christian artist and stuff. And then in a later interview, they're asking her, well, what do you think about homosexuality? And, and the answer is like, well, all I know is that God has called us to love people and, um, you know, and, I, and I'm growing just like everybody else is, and, and I really don't know, so we're just going to search this, you know, search and try to find out about God, and if you find out what he thinks about that, let me know. And I'm like, you are a leader in the body of Christ, right? This person is one of the most famous Christian musicians in the world right now, and it's like, that's what you got? You cannot speak the truth when someone asks you a point-blank question? You know, and, and so this, and, and the problem is, is that Christian music can be a machine just like any other machine. And it can be based on money. You know, turn to, uh, we're talking about the book of Revelations and stuff. And I want to turn to uh, Revelations chapter 13. Um, Remember the guy that came and spoke at Freedom House that was in a Christian band that talked about how it was all, it got to be all about money. Remember that? Yeah. The guy from News Boys. Yes. Yeah, Boys. John James. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was such a good testimony. And I, I read it, I, I heard a testimony about a guy. Y'all remember, Chrissy, you probably remember that Jesus Christ superstar back in the I 60s. Didn't see or, it, yeah. But yeah anyway, it. There, Jesus Christ superstar was ostensibly about Jesus and there's this rock opera type thing and stuff. And I remember hearing the testimony of the guy who played Jesus about how he would be drunk and stoned while playing Jesus and stuff. And sometimes he would start speaking in demonic tongues and stuff. Oh so, you know, and, and in Revelations 13, now, this is the way I kind of look at Revelations. Now, things might happen in the physical at some point. They, they may not. I don't know. Um, I'm not saying that they won't. But I do think that to some degrees, the book of Revelation, like, like the, book, the book of Revelation talks about Satan going to make war on the saints. Is that something that happened in the past? Is that something that's going to happen in the future? Happening right now. Or is that something that happens every day in our lives? Yeah. Right? And so when, when I look at the book of Revelations, it's like, okay, so some of this stuff may happen in the past. It may happen in a physical way. But what I see is this is the stuff I'm fighting this battle today. Yeah. And stuff. And Satan is trying to destroy me right now. And I look at Revelations 13, verse 16. It's talking about the, uh, the beast, and it says, And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free man and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he, listen to this, he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now again, this may happen at some time in the future where they put a barcode on your forehead or on your hand, but I'm telling you right now, in the world right now, if you're someone that's like an artist or, or in the public eye, you start talking about certain subjects, you will be blacklisted. There are preachers who have been publicly interviewed on, on television and things by national reporters who refused to speak what they truly thought about something because they knew that if they did, they would be blackmailed or blackballed, yeah. I guess. Yeah. I don't know if that's bad. But, and that's the thing. So it affects what? Their ability to buy and sell. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It affects them in the marketplace. Where does it hit them? In their pocketbook. Yeah. And that's what this scripture is talking about. Now, again, may this happen in the future. You know, I'm not looking for that. All I know is I see it happening right now. I yeah. see it today. I see believers who are afraid to say what they say. And they have been elevated into positions of respect, into positions of notoriety. These places are places where God allowed them to be just like Daniel. Just like people in the Bible, God allowed them to be in these positions at such a time as this to be able to have influence and be able to speak for God. And instead of doing that, they crumble because they don't want to be, they don't want to be affected by it. 
They don't want to lose album sales. And I guarantee you, there are people who were once musicians, who were once popular people, who are no longer popular because of their stances. Because they took a stand. Exactly. Because they made a stand. And so that mark may happen in the future, but it's also happening right now. But let me show you in Ezekiel, there's also a mark that's on the people of God. Ezekiel chapter 9. Because we, all, we always talk about this mark of Satan, this mark of the beast, and we're all terrified by it and stuff. But you know what? God has a mark also. In Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 1. This is, again, uh, Ezekiel's getting a picture of heaven. He's actually talking to the Son of Man. It says, Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, talking about Jerusalem, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. So Jerusalem had sinned against the Lord, and God was going to bring judgment in the form of the Babylonians. <coughs> it says, Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Then the glory of God, of the God of Israel, went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple, and he called to the man clothed in linen, linen at whose loins was the writing case. In other words, the glory of God is leaving the temple. You see that? Because of the... It said the glory of God went up from there, and so the glory of God was leaving the temple because of their sins. In verse 4, the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, look at this, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. Hmm. He says, But to the others he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Hmm. And so there are two marks. We always major on the mark of the beast. Oh, the mark. But there are two marks. God puts a mark on his people who see the things that are going on and they, they're like, God, they're grieved. they're grieved over it. Yeah. And they want change and they want God to move and they want, they want the, the hearts of the people to change. So yeah. I just kind of toss that one in there just to kind of encourage us. But again, like so, a lot of these people, their 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 lyrics have no depth. They have no. A lot of the doctrine is just crazy and stuff. And remember that the the hymns that we used to sing in the churches, they were purposefully um, written to indoctrinate the people of God, to teach the people of God doctrine. And this is the way God is. And that's what the old hymns are all about. I mean, I I love the old hymns. I I wish we would sing a lot more of those and stuff because they, there's so much um, meat in them. So in uh, Matthew 15, Jesus talks about a people who honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Turn to uh, Malachi 6, or Malachi chapter 1. Where's the one in Matthew 15 that just before you move on, what are you telling me where that one's at? Verses 1 through 9. Yeah, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, just like Isaiah said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And it says, but in vain do they worship me. Yeah. That's good. And that's the thing. I, I remember when I first got saved, I went to a denominational church with my stepsisters and and it's like, and everybody's singing out, and they were using hymns and stuff, and they all had the hymn books open, and they're like, uh, and I'm like singing, man, because I was like, oh, like this is awesome, and so I'm singing, and I can just hear myself, but I can't hear anybody else because they're just like, uh. and so you know, again, hymns aren't the end all be all either, you know, nothing is, but heart. I'm just saying it's the heart thing. You can, you can, and and that's the thing we can, you know, and that's the thing we can have steak and lobster and. And all these bountiful things set before us and say, you know what? I'd just rather have a bologna sandwich. 
And that's what God has for us, right? We talked about not too long ago about how the deep things of God have to be like gold. And gold doesn't just lay on the ground, but you have to dig for it. But also in the temple of God in Revelation, the streets are paved with gold. And the streets, and and they have sapphires, and they have gems all over them. And, And to some extent, that's true for us. The Bible is full of gems that we can just pick up. And they're just laying there for us. And we don't have to dig for them. They're just right there for us and stuff. But so many of us, we don't you know we're just more interested in just doing our religious thing and stuff and and that's why you know it, you you just look at the some of the worship that's going on and it's like, like man there is so much depth there there's so much jewels there's so much treasure there but we just rather opt for baloney and stuff um oh and malachi 1 verse 6 this is god speaking and this is the last thing that god spoke for 450 years says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? He says, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And that's the thing, again, with a lot of these people, if you were to say anything about anything, they're like, well, what are we doing? And stuff, and, and that's the thing with a lot, so many times it's like, you know, there's sometimes there's not anything that you can point to, right? You can't point, well, you're doing this and that and, you know, and obviously we can become nitpicky and things like that, but it's a heart matter, right? And that's the whole thing is sometimes it's the heart is not there. And so, um, it says, verse eight, when you, when you, um, he said, verse 7, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. He says, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you prevent the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your government? governor? Would he be pleased with you? So again, we know that God desires a pure and holy sacrifice without blemish, without spot. And so them, like us, a lot of times, they're just bringing whatever they had. You know, oh, this will be good enough. They're not bringing their best. Right. And he says, uh, he says, why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Look at this in verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. So again, we we think that, well, whatever we do in the name of the Lord, as long as it's, you know, in Jesus' name, and we pray before it, and we just do whatever, he's going to be satisfied with it. It's going to be fine. And he's not. And honestly, I, you know, we've led worship before and stuff. And there have been times when our hearts weren't in it. And worship like that is not pleasing to God. God wants all of our hearts. And, and so that's the thing. As worship leaders and as worshipers, we have to stir ourselves up, right? And, you, and that's why so many times on your way to church, you have a fight with your wife. Or you have a fight with your friend. What's happening is Satan is trying to divert your attention. He's trying to divert your heart. Get it off the focus of worshiping God with all your heart and seeking Him. Yeah. And so, again, these are just things that I kind of see the church kind of gravitating towards. And I'm not saying that, um, that everyone does this. I'm not saying that... I'm just saying that these are some of the things that, that I know that God wants us to be on guard against. He wants us to, to, to just like Paul told Timothy, stir up the gift of God within you. And there's times and seasons when our heart, when God comes and says, stir this up, stir it up, make sure your heart's in the right place. And it's as a father, he wants, he wants us to be in that place because God wants an acceptable offering. Right? God is pleased with an acceptable offering. It it blesses his heart when we're in it with all of our hearts and we're in it just to touch the hem of his garment. He loves that more than anything and stuff. But 
but again, it's not necessarily just a song service. It's the, it's our whole lives. And when we're, we're worshiping with all of our lives, when we're seeking Him all of our lives, when we come together as believers and we do have that song service, then it's, it's powerful. Then it's true worship. Then it's pleasing and a fragrant aroma to the Lord. Um, and just like Amy was saying earlier in John 4, he says, Jesus said, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, look at this, for such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And so again, I'm not pointing fingers at any person, any movement, any any of that. But I'm just saying that sometimes you can sense kind of which way the wind is blowing. You can feel the currents are kind of leading in certain places. And the thing is, is Satan, Satan doesn't want us to be Satan worshipers. Satan just has to divert us a little bit, right? That's the whole, that's been the whole scheme from the very beginning is Satan is not trying to get us to renounce God or turn our backs on God. He just wants to get us where, you know, our hearts ain't in it. Or where we're just going through the motions or where we're exalting ourselves or where we're showing off. Look how good I can play, you know. And it's a fearful thing to stand before the people of God and worship. I mean, you, we've told you guys before how we go to these churches and, and they're playing like Highway to Hell. And, you know, and this is the worship team. <laughs> And they're playing this before the service. They're playing Highway to Hell or, you know, every every week it's a different secular song. And it's, it's like, and it's like you're going to sing this out of one mouth and then you're going to sing Worship to God out of the same mouth. It says, can, can, can water flow from an unclean stream? Or I'm not sure how the scripture goes off the top of my head, but it's basically God, you know, we, we can't, we can't be living in this muddied stream and then try to hop into the clean one the next and stuff. God's like, get clean all the way or get dirty all the way. That's the whole thing about be cold, be warm, hot, or be cold. In some ways, it's better when someone's cold because they're not playing the game. They're not putting on the mask. They're not going through the motions. And, you know, if, if, if you tell someone about Jesus and, they, and they're foaming at the mouth, Sometimes those people are closer to being saved than people that are religious and you try to tell them about the things of God and they're like, oh, and they won't hear it, you know? I mean, I remember when, before I got saved and people were, were trying to teach or try to share the gospel with me, I would laugh at them and I would mock them and I would make fun of them. But at the same time, my heart was pierced. And I know other people like, when, when, when I was a teenager, me and my friend, we used to party, and I knew enough of the Bible that I would say, like, man, if we died, we would go straight to hell right now. But he was a good Baptist guy, you know. His mom told him how great he was all the time. And he's like, no, no, we're, no, you know. And, and that's the way religious people are. It's like you can't convince them. You can't show them that anything they're doing is wrong. But sometimes someone that's like completely lost, at least they'd like, oh, yeah, you're right, but I still don't want to change, <laughs> you know. And so at least it's being honest. And God can, in some measures, work with honesty. So. Yeah.